So, good afternoon. Thanks for coming. Uh, here's what I want to do. I'd like to try to get um, through at least chapter 7, um, which is as far as I posted some summaries and stuff on the Facebook page. So, if we can get that far and kind of talk through some of that stuff, I think that'll at least give us a, um, a good running start to trying to get the rest of the stuff done. Um, I, don't, I don't have my own notes done for chapter 8, but if we get that far, we might kind of push in and digest that stuff together. Um, and then if i got to clean up some wrong thinking on my part, I'll, I'll do it next week or online. Um, all right, so where we've, where we've come from, right? We got all the way through the end of Rev- Revelation 3. That was John's discussion, um, uh, writing down of what Jesus had to say to the churches. So one of the things I think we need to keep in mind as we go forward um, is that each of the things that we're going to read should still mean something to the churches in Asia Minor. Okay, that can mean something also for us today, and, I, and most of it does. In fact, almost all of it does. Um, but uh, the questions we should be asking is, what does this vision communicate to those seven churches that Jesus already talked about? Um, we should see some, some resemblances to the things that Jesus has said showing up to the circumstances that he's, that he's also describing in the visions. Okay, So that's one of the things that we're going to keep asking as we go through these sections is, what is it that the churches in Asia Minor might be getting from this description? How might they be encouraged? How might they be warned? Okay, how might be the assured, that kind of stuff, okay? Uh, all right, so there is a, we got done with the letters to the churches, and then we start in Revelation 4, chapter, uh, yeah, 4, verse 1. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal." All right, so let's, let's start there. So he says, after this, I looked and behold, the door stand, stood open. Uh, a couple things about this. We don't have to assume that it is a sequential time. Okay? It doesn't necessarily mean that in sequence, first, spe- this is what I gave to the churches, and then as time progresses, you will see this is what's going to happen. What he's saying is that after I saw this vision, this was the next vision I saw. Okay, it doesn't necessarily prescribe a sequential order. Um, that's going to be true. Every time we see a passage of time, it doesn't, doesn't imply that it has to be a time actually moving. Okay? It just means that these are, the, these are the visions that John is seeing and these are the ones that he's writing down. Um, this, um, we talked about this a little bit in the end times class, for those of you guys that went through it. Um, but when he says, After this looked in a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speak to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. This is a of the strong four references that people would make um, for a rapture. This is the place where they would, they would say, This is when the, we're called up. Okay, okay, come up here. Now, the problem that we would have with this, of course, is you said, come up here. Um, I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. That is a, um, a singular pronoun. That's to John. Okay, that's not a we, that's in him. Okay, so that makes way more sense uh, speaking to John directly as opposed to assuming something that I think the text just can't bear out. If there, again, um, like we talked about in the end times class, there are better ways to support a rapture thought than Revelation 4.1. That's probably a little bit low uh, on my level of things that like at least having a conversation about. Okay. What's uh, the significance of the door? Well, okay, that's a good question. Um, what do you think? I think that in the culture, because I've had some conversation with Dave Eric about the culture there. Okay. And you're not necessarily, unless you're family, you don't get to come in. 
Okay. People are met at the door, and then as you get to know, then there's like an entryway that you might get to come into. Right. And then as as you as you become part of the family or a close relationship friend wise, then you're invited in to come and sit at the table and actually because just just random Joe people don't get to come in. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's the right distinction of a door. What does a door do? It allows people in. It keeps people out. Right. And John, and John is given the vision of an open door. An open door. Yep. Where, have we seen a door yet in Revelation? Does anybody remember if we've seen a door come up yet? Is this on the, the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open? Okay. Okay. Yeah. There's one, right? Like you have, you have keys that are uh, allowing entrance or not allowing entrance. Good. There's one more spot. And it would have happened, so we, we skipped a week, uh, otherwise it's probably fresher in your mind. It was in a letter to a church just prior to this. The ye old painting that we see that we, we mistake probably as an evangelism thing, which is directed at the church. Jesus standing at the door. Jesus standing at the door, yeah. Yeah, all have the same connotation. That's good, April, that's good. Like, we're looking at symbols in the right way. They all kind of have the same connotation, allowance of it, guarding, uh, keeping people out, letting people in, that type of thing. Okay. Uh, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this Uh, once I was in the spirit that's interesting Um, if we look at some of the um, uh, descriptions in Ezekiel that's the same description you're getting of do you guys remember in Ezekiel chapter 6 is where he's in the uh, he says I'm a man of unclean lips and he's in the presence of God and you see these angels kind of flying around him okay he describes that it's that same thing Daniel describes the same thing I'm in the spirit I get to see the visions there's a lot of consistency and I posted this on the on Facebook a couple uh, maybe it was last night um, between Daniel's visions and Revelation 4 and 5 um, and you actually see a lot of connection between Ezekiel 1 and 2 as well um, which would make sense right if they're all being kind of led into heaven to see things from a different perspective to see things how God sees them and then to then come down and communicate not only what God says but his people's role in that we would expect there to be some consistency there okay and so there, there is when he says I was in the spirit behold a throne stood in heaven which with one seated on the throne um, what does the throne imply power power yeah Ruler, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ownership, ruler, power, that type of thing. A throne is in heaven, and there's one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So um, when I posted this on Facebook, what did I say, for any of you guys that might have read it, like how should we understand these kind of these gems that he's talking about? Well, there's no way of describe. well, so this is the best way you can describe it. It's the most beautiful thing he knows, or the most colorful thing he knows, or beyond his his imagination to be able to explain it with words that he knows so he's just coming up with everything he knows is pretty right do, would we expect to s- priceless and they're, yeah. they're they're expensive and they're Yeah, I don't think we need to reshape our understanding of who God is to be like an emerald with a mustache I don't know if God wears a stash or not, but I'm just saying, like, it doesn't have to replace. It's a symbolic picture of what's, what's rare, what's beautiful, okay? And we said that John is trying to stretch kind of our language to a breaking point. If I'm in the heavenly realms, I don't know that I could adequately explain what's going on around me. He keeps saying, like something. This looks like this, like this, like this. It's not this, it's like it. Because he doesn't capture its essence quite right. And that probably makes a lot of sense with what we're actually able to, uh, to take in um, from John's, and what John is actually able to describe to us. What's interesting, 
interesting is if we look in Revelation 21, what I think you're seeing here is we have, we have three of these. We have Jasper and Carnelian and Emerald show up. And if we go to Revelation 21, which is kind of the description of the new heavens and the new earth, you're going to see these same emeralds or these same jewels brought out in conversation, but, they're, but it's going to be expanded. Okay, you basically get a full sense. It's a, it's a precursor to how we're to look at the description of the new, uh, the new city, uh, the new Jerusalem. If we look at, uh, this is in 21 verse 10, said he, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates and the north three gates on the south three gates on the west three gates and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. Okay, um, And then 18, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold clear as glass and the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel the first was jasper the second sapphire the third agate the fourth emerald the fifth onyx the sixth carnelian see what he's doing okay it's giving us kind of the same picture and it's kind of it's cool how he describes it too because he says that this the city kind of has the glory of god the essence of it which is partially what we got described to us in revelation chapter four of what's on the throne Okay, it's a very cool description that um, that he uses then going forward, and it's, I think it's that Jasper that I think reasonably can tie those two things together. It's what he mentions first in both occasions. Uh, around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Unfortunately, like it would be cool if that rainbow word was the same uh, rainbow or bow in the sky uh, in Genesis. It's not. It's not the same word. Um, things that we wish John would have done, right? Come on, John. If you could have just said that same thing, that would have been neat. Uh, Holy Spirit was obviously right. Our expectations are wrong. Um, it says, around the throne um, was a, uh, excuse me, were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So, who do we think these fellows are? And does it matter? I, I don't know that. I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters. I think it's the 12 tribes or the 12 apostles or any of the, anybody's been that's generally I don't think it really matters either because he doesn't describe them right like John could have said anything here he doesn't tell us who they are um, most most people fall onto something like that um, that if you see the uh, 12 tribes of Israel and then the 12 apostles if God if God has kind of chosen 12 on both sides of that for a reason completion related to people okay and we see the entirety of God's people kind of represented here people um, other thoughts is that uh, like these are the angels that kind of represent that um, but that that's largely where they think the number comes from. But again, if, if John thought it was important, he probably would explain it to us, and he doesn't really. Um, they will interact. They will interact later on in the story. We'll see these elders kind of say things and, and pay attention to things, but like he simply doesn't name them, and I don't think we need to spend a lot of time trying to name people that John doesn't name. Go ahead, Dan. Well, it's interesting. We're here on this earth. It's a 340 or whatever. Now we're stepped into the spirit, into a realm that where God exists. It's beyond our comprehension. And he uses the stuff he knows from this world try to explain that world yeah he says it's kind of like but it's not going to be close and he doesn't have the vocabulary to explain to us and we don't have the vocabulary to understand what he's saying right and so it's beyond us and what that's what i want my god to be beyond my description right i'm a simple country boy if i can understand god you're in a world no that's true that's true if i'm worshiping a god that's kind of on my level i think i got the wrong guy 
Yeah. yeah, okay. I can see that. Um, it said there are uh, 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. Hey, no, I kind of don't miss the around the throne, because like this, this does uh, help us orient ourselves, right? This throne that he saw with the emeralds and stuff, everything is, everything is related to it. That's how we describe it. It's a relation to the throne itself. They have thrones that surround it. They're clothed in white garments. We said that's, that's kind of a, a symbol of God's people. All God's people in Revelation are wearing white garments. Okay? Symbols of victory and distinctions between um, what they wear and, frankly, what everybody else wears. There's people, uh, Laodicea was accused of being naked. That's not good relative to God's people wear white. And we said there also, also might be an interplay when we think of white garments with um, the Roman triumph. Uh, and what, that'll actually, I think, come out, bear out just a little bit more um, in a subsequent chapter where it actually even fits out a little bit better. Um, golden crowns on your head. There's some level of authority. I think that's a lot where the um, tribes of Israel and the uh, apostles things come from. Is like who who's, who stands out with twelves associated with them has some level of authority or is naming rights or something. Um, I think that's kind of where this is coming from. Oh, and that's crucial that they have crowns because later on they lay them down. Yeah. And and that's what we're called to do. Right. Not because we want to. Yes. We're not made to. Right. We but, can't help but do. Exactly. Yeah, yeah even, though, even those who, who might have other authority um, are subservient up at the throne of God, right? Okay, good. Um, and then it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. We're going to see this, uh, if you guys have been trying to read through this, even beyond where we've been, you're going to see this over and over and over again. So the thing that w- what we're going to want to do is anytime we see flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, it should also always bring us back to the throne room of God. Okay, it's going to show up after the after the seven seals, the seven bowls, and the seven trumpets. Okay, and a couple other places. Um, these things come from God's authority. They come from God's throne. Okay, it's, there's a level of assurance in that. There's some sovereignty in that that we're having to recognize that even these things that we're like, boy, that sounds that sounds fierce. What's going on? They originate from the throne of God. Would that be? Would that bring comfort or distress or what to the seven churches in Asia Minor? Yeah. Even of the lightning and the rumbling and the peals of thunder, and and even what they're facing, yeah. right? Like if 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 the if we look at these series of judgments that are to come, regardless of how how rough we think that they are, right. um, and and one of them, the picture of the martyrs underneath the altar, and God says, "Yes, more of you to die," and yes, that that emanates from me. And so, Jesus is called to the churches to persevere. Like, can they take comfort in the fact and say, at least I know this is from God. As much as I, don't, I may not want it, as much as I might fear it, as much as I want to flee from this, and maybe I'll just bow down to that statue and things will go away. He says, no, no, you, I want you to persevere and just know that these are at the hand of God. He's well aware of what you're going to. That is a source of assurance, for one, but also a comfort. Like times when, I, when, when I would, I'm under some sort of um, turmoil or something, and I'm not facing what they're facing, but even the things that are going on around me, and I say, but does God, does God see does he, does he understand what I'm going through, the things that I'm feeling? Um, yeah. Yeah, he does. I have some assurances that whatever's being allowed, he is, he is allowing. Sometimes he is doing directly. And I can be assured that not only it's within his control, but he understands what I'm going through. He says, I know. I know. Continue on. Persevere. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, I think that's, a, that's some assurance for them when they're seeing people die around them, when they're seeing their livelihoods kind of being constrained by either you participate um, with these things that the Roman culture is asking you to participate in, otherwise you'll be ostracized and you may not be able to make a living. He's saying, I know. So, which means we have to be kind of careful with our but gods. I know I'm supposed to be faithful in the means, but, but God... You don't understand what the implication is. You don't understand what will happen if I do this. You don't under... Yeah, he does. 
Yeah, he does. And we should take assurance in that and be emboldened in that as opposed to like, well, maybe this kind of slipped under his radar and he just doesn't understand how things work. Which, simplification, and this was kind of the output of, of what comes from um, the Matthew sermon yesterday, is, is basically we're faithful in the means. God, God is in control of the ends. He knows what we go through even in the means that he's called us to be faithful in. And he's saying, I know. And I don't get a but God. I just say, yes, God. I know. Hey, yeah, I think that's, I think that's assurance for them. So this area is applicable to us. Oh, absolutely. We're talking about the first century, you know, the first, all the seven churches and things like that and take it in that context. This is absolutely applicable. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can take this as a... Yeah, even even in our culture, the truth is, is the stuff that second and third uh, the churches that are in, in second and third Revelation are going through. Like, there's certainly places in the world where that this sounds completely normal to them. We, we may not be going through those things, and so we, there's a little distance for us from those. But the truth is that even in our environment, we still have but gods. We still have places where we're saying, "Yeah, but God, you don't understand." I I I, I, I know I should be faithful in the means, but I feel like I can kind of dictate the end, and the end is better than what your means will produce, even for your kingdom. And we can get disillusioned. Um, the Christian church especially has, has, has some major blind spots getting disillusioned with, yeah, but we're not faithful in the means, but we think we can produce the ends. We can get 10,000 people into this church, but you didn't get there by preaching Jesus. You didn't get there being faithful to Scripture. We got there because we kind of gave people what they wanted. And that's certainly not true for every church that's 10,000 people strong, right? But like, can we, can we grow God? God's church without growing God's kingdom, uh, we can grow a church without growing God's kingdom, sure. But like that's where we got to be careful with our with our but gods. We don't get to dictate the outcome. We we preach, we follow Christ, we preach Him faithfully, uh, and we make disciples. And whether that produces ten or a thousand or ten thousand, that's on God's hands. We're faithful in the means, and frankly, that simplifies our lives. We don't have to worry about a lot of things. We just be faithful in the means that God has given us to be faithful in. And then he will handle the ends. I don't have an expectation to think that I let God down because I can't point out 200 people that I brought to Jesus. I mean, I hope, I hope there's a good number. But really, all I can ask for is I'm faithful in the means that God has given me. And then he will handle the ends as to where those go. All right. Uh, around the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So I kind of like this sea reference. I kind of like this sea reference because, um, especially coming from an Old Testament perspective, the sea would mean what? Uh, war and stuff like that, right? Who, um, let me ask, what was that? Danger. Yeah, danger, evil, chaos. Yeah, yeah. We get that in a number of different places. Um, we get that in kind of God's judgment that comes from the flood. Um, we get that from the beasts in Daniel 7. They're coming out of the sea. God, now, God's calling them out of the sea. That's not, they just don't wander on out. It's, they're coming from the sea. In Revelation, we're going to see the same thing. These beasts that show up later on, that's where they're coming from. They're coming from the sea. Now, if that represents to a, to a Jew, oh, another example, um, Jesus, right? When he's on the boat and there's a giant storm and, and, <laughs> and Jesus says, calm. And he can, he can force the storm to calm down. What was threatening to them, threatening to their livelihoods, can be calm in the presence of God. What's going on at God's throne? The sea is what? It's calm. Calm. It's like glass. Yeah. Calm like glass. Okay? It's absolutely Absolutely. Evil, evil and chaos has, makes no motion at the throne of God. It's completely under his control. Um, as a matter of fact, you know what's interesting? Um, what? Ooh, I'm going to forget which chapter. It's either in chapter 21 or chapter 22. Hold on. Let me take a look because this is kind of important. Um, I think it's in 21 verse 1. If anybody beats me there, go ahead and read it. Yeah, Revelation 21, verse 1. Did anybody get it? Then I saw 
saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Hey man, new heaven, new earth, what's gone completely? The sea. The sea was no more. That which, that which comes, evil and chaos and trouble comes forth is completely gone in our new reality. Now, water's not gone. There'll be a river. There'll be a river that flows through. If you the rest of Revelation 21, there's a river that kind of flows through the city. Um, but the sea, which is our connotation of evil and chaos, is completely calm and under control at the throne of God and is gone in Revelation 21. That's cool. That's a cool picture. Um, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. How many? Yeah, that means something. Full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Uh, so we take four. Some It's a measure of what? Earth, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's, it means completion generally associated with the earth. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. Um, does anything jump out about the types of um, creatures that we're describing? Damn. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, same same creatures. Also, uh, also Ezekiel. Okay, and the same order, same order. When it, when Ezekiel's in the throne room of God, he describes the same d- descriptions and also in the same order. So, if we look at them, we th- let's think of what they uh, what we got. We have four of them, so we have some hope, generally some measure of completion. Okay, um, you have lion. Is uh, what do we think of the lion as an animal? What's his relative status to other animals? Yeah. That's right. King of the jungle, right? Okay. King, king of the whatever. King of the wild animals. But we made that up. Like we Americans made that up. No. Right? I mean, like, no. Always, always like yes. The, yes. Whatever. Yes. Correct. No, the Lion King is not derivative of only American values and beliefs. That's why it was such a big deal. <laughs> Daniel killed the lion, right? Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, that meant something to them. No. No. But 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 his. Um, David. Right. David. I knew what you meant, even though I agreed to the wrong thing. <laughs> so, so if you, Daniel seven, Daniel seven, Daniel seven. That's right. So, if we have lion, who's let's call king of the wild animals or the head of wild animals, um, at least again from a Jewish perspective, they would have agreed with this. Second living creature, like an ox. This is going to be your uh, basically a ruler of the domesticated animals. Okay, the strongest beast of the domesticated animals. Um, man, uh, who we who we've met before, and the fourth living creature, like an eagle, who's basically the strongest and most noble bird of the of the flying creature. Okay, you have what I think is going on here is a representative of um, basically all creation, all all living, breathing type of creation. Okay, and they're they're sitting around the throne room of God. Now look at the description: full of eyes in front and behind. What what do we think that means? Like literally creatures with eyes everywhere? They see everything. Yeah. Insight and wisdom. Exactly. Insight and wisdom. Things, things that obviously God has, because we've, we've already had the description of um, uh, these seven spirits, which I think is the Holy Spirit. Okay, you have some attributes of God, which are then used to describe these creatures. And what I think is going to happen is we're going to see that they're interacting. They're the ones that actually kind of report on the world. Okay, they oversee what's going on. They'll be part of, of calling the judgments that come out. Okay, so that's what we have. We have these these four creatures that are serving around God's throne, kind of representing all living, breathing creation. Uh, and it says, day and night, they never cease to say, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come." We're going to see that um, played out in in a few different ways throughout Revelation. Um, you're going to see that it will repeat itself. There will be a time where it says, "Who was and is." No is to come because that time has arrived. Something's changed about the status of the arrival of the king. 
Um, and then you have that parody. I say we have a parody coming up um, of description where they're going to kind of manipulate this phrase where it's not going to be quite the thing, the same thing, but we're going to recognize that it's comparing to this phrase. Okay? Um, and so they're all, day and night, they are never ceasing to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is, is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before them who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So one of the things that I think is going on in this chapter, and we're going to also see in Revelation chapter 5, okay, is they're being assured of who they're dealing with. Okay? If our seven churches of Asia Minor are saying, uh, you know, I, 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 Antipas is dead, and, and we're running into all these types of problems, and all the, all the apostles have died, and you say that, that we're fine, and that you understand what's going on, they need reminded who we're dealing with. And one of the things that we don't do very well is like, I kind of move by the fact that God created everything. I, I put that kind of in a Sunday school category. I'm like, yeah, 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 he created everything. Can we move on? To the, to the deeper things of life, right? But the truth is, is that like, I need to be reminded of who I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with the creator of the universe here. That undergirds everything I understand about who God is and the power he has. And it puts his sovereignty in this cir- circumstance and in others in really good perspective, right? So, so re- we're being reminded if, if these, these people that surround these creatures, that surround the throne, okay, something that I've gotten past, the, <laughs> the, the creatures in heaven are still kind of stuck on. You're the creator of everything. Okay? Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. We'll be reminded of God's sovereignty. Here's the thing. is like I'm not, a, um, I'm not a, a Calvinist. I'm not a predestination guy. But I do need to be reminded of the sovereignty of God. Okay? The truth is, I, it's hard to hold, you hold both in tandem here because the, the, the thing is, is that like, we're saying all these things originate out of God's will. It is within his sovereignty that they are occurring. He's still encouraging them to persevere and saying, you have, you, you have a choice. You will, you, some will persevere, some will choose not to. Okay? But this should remind us, before we get too carried away with our notion of free will, is to recognize that we still serve a sovereign God. Okay? And his wills will be accomplished. Exactly how that's done, I think that's kind of a God thing to know. He, he's got that worked out better than I do. I know I have choices, but I also know that God's will will be accomplished, okay, in one way or another. I like the I like the wording of it because it's not past tense and it's not future. It's happening now. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's not whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor. It's like when they give it, and so it's like in it right now. Right, and like it's just already happened. It's right. not something to look forward to. This is just this is what's happening. Yeah, absolutely because here's here's the right question right. is like right this moment. Do we, do we, would we have any reason to think that this is not happening today? Would we have any reason to think that this was not happening a thousand years ago? No, this is the right reaction to who God is at all times, right? And so I, you're right. I think that audience are the vision correctly is to understand that like we're in the throne room of God. This is simply what the throne room of God looks like. <laughs> this is what's going on up there. Yeah. yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Everything seems to be an act of worship when you read through all this. Yeah which means that's where our life is supposed to be. Exactly. And that's a good point, because I think one of the other things that we're going to notice reading through Revelation is that um, calls to worship and calls to war are both signaled by trumpets, and it's because those are less distinct than we make them. Like, our worship is war. Our prayers are extremely important, and they, they will move heaven. 
and they, they mean something. Um, and so our worship and our prayers to God um, have an impact that I think I, I, um, I need to be reminded of because then I'm emboldened by. Um, I, there's been things, my wife, uh, my wife and children did something what I consider cruel to me, but God has responded to it. Uh, I was flying on the way back from Jacksonville this week, um, no, it was last week, and uh, they prayed for me to talk to somebody on the plane. I don't, listen, listen here, like, I, I'm, I love y'all, like y'all, okay, but like other folk, I don't, no, not really, not really, unless they're like, hey, I have questions about Jesus, I'm like, I'm in, <laughs> past that, I don't really care about your business, okay, but, so I don't talk to people on the plane, I got headphones in, yeah, actually, I was talking to somebody else, and he said, that, that's a, this is a Buva job, Buva should talk to people on planes, that's not my gig. I do. So that's what I'm saying, this, this is up your alley, right? So I usually put the headphones in, I read, I read something, I'm studying something, I'm fine. So my cruel wife as invested the children and they say hey God we help Ben to talk to somebody on the plane and I'm not sure what prompts a woman to do this to a man but that's what she, that's what she does to me and so I get on the plane to come from um, Des Moines to it or excuse me from Atlanta to Des Moines and I ended up sitting next to a guy and me and that guy who's I, I, bet he's, I bet he's late 40s talked for two hours straight Two hours straight chatting with this man about, uh, he'd recently left the Catholic Church. We spent a lot of time talking about Jesus. He's a bass player. Okay, He knew some 70s and 80s funk bands, of which I really dug on the conversation. Like I couldn't have found another guy that to have spent so much time talking with. It was crazy. Like I can't talk to my own brother for this long as I was talking to this character. And it was just the weirdest thing, because I don't do that on planes. And then I find out like a few hours later that my wife had prayed me into this. And I thought, no, this is what she's done. She, so here's, here's the thing. So when did you come to the church? Uh, he lives in Ames. We're working on it. <laughs> so, um, but, but here's the thing. That got me out of it. Something that my wife prayed for. And like, do, do I know if all those things are always happening at God's hand? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, there's some things that are probably coincidental, okay? But like, that really sniffs like, my wife prayed for something and God says, okay. <laughs> I got, in fact, I got bumped to get to that seat. I got moved from my junk seat and ended up in like a more comfortable seat next to this character. I'm like, ah. So here's the thing. It's a minor example. It's a minor example. But like, our prayers do things. Our prayers well, do things. Not when the Bible's telling us that our prayers are incense and they're received and, and they're answered with right. with throwing down of lightning and, and you know. You get yeah. zapped. I did not get zapped. I, I, think, I think we we do the shotgun prayers not really thinking about the repercussions. Like if you're gonna pray, you better like Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. That was way too specific. How can, can't we just pray for, hey, I hope Ben has a nice flight? No, stick him next to a dude. Have him converse for a couple hours. I didn't know you didn't want to It's cruel. All right. Um, a couple interesting things. Notice uh, we saw some things repeated here. Um, we have uh, forever and ever. We're reminded of the permanence of God's sovereignty of his rulership compared to even what they're they're under right so these kings of the earth that are otherwise causing the, the folks in, Rev, in uh, revelation 2 and 3 um that's kind of what's put them under the gun they're reminded that it is god who rules forever and ever okay that's a good reminder it's good news um what one one potential interaction i'm going to give this to you like um i'm not 100 percent on this but it's interesting it says worthy are you our lord and god so do you anybody remember the name of the emperor that i said was in power at the time that john wrote this uh, yeah, Domitian? Sir, it's Domitian. Yep, Domitian was the emperor. So if you look back, there's a um, there's a historian, Roman historian named Suetonius, and um, he says that um, that Domitian required um, when people were to address him, either to talk to him or in writing, they were, that they were supposed to refer to him as our Curios and our Theos, our Lord 
and our God. Okay. Is it possible that John is interacting with this here, like those two things distinctly? Yeah, you know, it's kind of a cool interaction. I don't know. I don't know. But leave it as a potential possibility that John is kind of interacting with a, with a, a man at the time who's kind of a little bit behind some of the things that these churches are seeing. And he said, you're going to refer to me as our, our um, as Kyrios and our Theos. That's Lord and God. And that's exactly what John says here, reinforcing that's how we describe who is on the throne. That is not this man here. Okay? That's, yeah, correct. Yeah. So I, does it diminish this if that's not true? No, not really. Not really. But it could be an interesting interaction between John and kind of what's going on. And would they have caught that type of thing? Yeah, I think they certainly would have. Did you say it was Domitian? Domitian, yep. Okay. Chapter 5. See, look at that. We're making some progress here. Chapter 5. The scroll and the lamb. Uh, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written uh, within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel com- uh, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why is John upset? So that was my question. I underlined that and said, why are you crying? Yes. It's a good question. What is he upset about? He wants to read the scroll. Yeah. What? Why? What's in the scroll? I was going to say, is there anything, is there any cultural thing about just scrolls in general that this guy's digging on? Or is it just the fact that he's curious and no one's opening it? So, so that's... Well, there's seven seals. It's got to be important. Yeah. So that's the right question. You're asking the right question. Um, I think no he's one... crying because there's nobody worthy. Yeah. So, so think about... All of the elders with the crowns. And and the beast with all the things and the heads and the lions and the eyes and the wings and right. I mean, there's no and nobody can open this. Heaven and all of earth and all of under the earth. There's yeah. like nobody. Yeah. So I think all those things are coming together. Think of where he's at. Okay, he's in the throne room of God. All right. There is uh, w- w- your limited knowledge of scrolls is enough here. What do scrolls contain? Knowledge. Yeah. Information, knowledge, something, right? Okay, this is sealed up by seven seals. Okay, there is there is knowledge available within the throne room of God that nobody is worthy to open. Okay, what is what is John what is John hoping to get from all this? What is he hoping to pass on? And this is going to be broad, but what is he hoping to pass on to these churches in Asia Minor? Encouragement. Yeah, a, yeah, a word from God. Right? There is a message that John is saying, my job is to write down these visions. There is something in this scroll, because it showed up, right? Obviously, he, he gets it. There's a scroll there, and no one, no one is able to open it. Is it holding the scroll? In, the right, in his right hand. Yeah. In the, so who's holding the scroll? It's God. Yeah, it's God's. It's yes. The man. Exactly. The right hand of God. He's holding The right hand of God. And so no that's a great point. Think about that. that makes yeah, sense. so he's, well, he's supposed to be a spirit, but he says. The man has yeah, it in his hand. That's right. Man's got knowledge in his hand that anybody would... I mean, you die to have. God has something to communicate and no one is worthy to open the scroll. It, and it's even possible... It's interesting to think is like, who's running through John's mind uh, to April's point of why can't they open the scroll? Why can't, why can't this all-seeing people open the scroll? Why can't these angels open the scroll? Why can't the elder open the scroll? And even, even, where's Jesus? <laughs> can Jesus not... No one can open the scroll, Right? Yeah. Wrote the scroll. The father wrote the scroll. Who wrote the scroll? Why is it not open? Yeah. 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 Why, why don't we even know about it? Like, well, yeah. Why is he got a sealed scroll here? Yeah. Yeah. It actually it makes this um, this throws us back to something in Daniel, um, like a potential thought that there were things that he was supposed to communicate, and he said, "Seal it up, seal it up." Is that this? 
Because like that was that would have been important things, right. and we want to know it now. All right, so let's let's continue. So I, I think that's right. I think that's the right thought process. There's there's knowledge. It's in there. It's coming from God. And John weeps because he wants the knowledge, and there's no one worthy. John himself is obviously not worthy to open the scroll. Okay, yeah. so he weeps. He wants to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, "Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals." How did Jesus conquer? By his death. Yeah, yeah, by his death on the cross, right? Because of who he is, because of what he has done. Wait, this is Jesus, right? We're pretty confident this is Jesus. Yeah, Yeah, it's pretty Jesus, that's right. Um, Okay, so he says, The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. It is indeed Jesus that can open the scroll. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So seven horns, seven eyes, and seven spirits. Is that pretty much just saying he's got all the power, he's got all the wisdom, and he's got all the the glory of God? Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So generally, you remember we were talking about spirits earlier? We thought that that seven spirits is probably is likely a description of the Holy Spirit. Okay, it w- and it wouldn't have been in, it wouldn't have been capitalized in the Greek, so we got to be careful with that. But like, yeah, I think um, I'm comfortable with that representing the Holy Spirit. So like, those are the things that we're describing attributes of Jesus. Um, he has all power and can see everything. And like, the truth is, is he has uh, the things he accomplished on earth. He attributed to the Holy Spirit. Right. So this seems like the right kind of understanding of of Jesus. Okay. Um, and he went out and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open, it, open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe, language, people, and nation. How many? Four. four. And you have made them a kingdom and priests. We said we saw that coming from Exodus 19 to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That reminds us of Second uh, Peter's assurances to us in Second Peter: "You are kingdom and priests." Okay, um, who are they treating the lamb as? Like w- the people that were worshiping around the throne of God. Now, who are they worshiping? The lamb. Yeah, he he's receiving the same worship that God was. The same worship that God was. This is where we, like, um, understanding that is, is sometimes a difficult thing for people to grasp that Jesus is God. And uh, you'll have some corners that say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Um, they're sure treating him like God, right? The heavens are treating him like God. Well, and I find it interesting that he's the one weeping, but nobody else is, because they know. And just a random elder, one the elder says, Weep no more. Weep no more. Look. You know, that is I love that. I love that reminder because sw- switch kind of circumstances, right? The the uh, the elders can assure John because they they know Jesus and they say, look, I know what you're thinking and I know where you're worried, but don't worry, Jesus has got this under control. Yeah. Now, try to grab that consequence and kind of stick it in your own life. Do I got people that are do I, that I know they're struggling with things that are looking at circumstances that are hard to bear, and then I say, hey, I know. But don't worry, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is here. And John was very close with him, according to the scriptures. True. The inner circle and, and the one that Jesus loved and all that. So is he... Does he not see him? Yeah, so, so, so far he's not been on the scene in here, in the throne room, right? 
Like John's description of the throne room um, doesn't have Jesus in it until he says, uh, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing there. That's, wh- that's when he sees them. And he seems to have been looking in that general direction, but doesn't note the presence of Jesus. I feel like that's a thing that comes up, right? If you've got, uh, I don't know, Bob Dole sitting in your living room along with your family, your first mention is going to be, hey, Bob Dole's here. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where Bob Dole came from, but you know, if he's, you know, then you say, and the rest of my family. You don't be like, hey, Uncle Uncle Larry's here, and Aunt Glinda. Oh, and Bob Dole happens to be in the living room. Like, so I feel like Jesus would have come up in his description if he would have seen him there. So I think that's maybe, maybe that's where it's coming from. Go ahead, Dan. Well, Shane brings up the idea of the change of heaven because it starts out with that Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit are in heaven, and there's a transition. Now Jesus is on the ground, on earth, absent in heaven. And then after the crucifixion, he's now the crucified Christ. Is I that. We see the Lamb, and then the Holy Spirit leaves, comes down. It could be, although I don't know, again, based on where we've oriented, oriented from like a temporal perspective, like this doesn't seem like it would be tied specifically to... Uh, he, like Jesus is just coming in from having been crucified. Like although the, the slain lamb does that, but I think what I, like gives that picture. But I think that's more oriented to the the worship that they're giving. Because listen to what they said: Were there you to take the scroll to open its seals for, or think because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God? So I think that's actually more likely as to where the image of the lamb and stuff is coming from. So yeah, I mean I, I, it's, I think it's possible. I just don't know. I, and maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it doesn't matter, except for John had not um, had not seen or interacted with Jesus, and he needed like someone to open the scrolls. And then again, the reinsurance always comes from Christ and what He's able to accomplish versus the things that we think cannot be done. Well, that's, that's true. It's very possible. Uh, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice. Uh, wait, is anybody reading the Bible where they translate that as like two hundred million? No, no, no. So, like, um, I think it's the most recent NIV, or maybe prior to that point. They will translate um, either that or some other time later as two hundred million. Um, that's the same phrase, though. Anytime we see myriads and myriads, which is um, echoing a phrase from Daniel, um, it's, they've rendered it as like ten thousands times ten thousands. Ten thousands, thousands, thousands. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, like, um, if you see it's 200 million, uh, just be aware, like, that's rendering from the same phrase. Myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands. Um, I don't think that's supposed to be a literal count, just like nothing else up to this point has been a literal count. Um, That may be trying to point theology to a certain outcome, but, like, just know that that's the same word. It's the same description, okay? Thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Yeah, okay. And there's a lot of different variations with that particular thing. I think it's not intending to give you an explicit number, just like it wasn't in Daniel. So if it comes up with an explicit number, I'm just reminded, just want to show you that that's the same phrase, okay? Myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. Um, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. How many? Seven. 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 Com- complete what? <laughs> complete what? Number. Um, so what are these only who's playing? Receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Uh, it, it's, been the, it's been the theme of our chapter so far. Worship. worship. Yeah. 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 Complete worship. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. How many? Four, heaven, earth, under the earth, and the sea. And all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might for 
forever and ever. Again, there's our forever and ever phrase, which is just recently attached to whose worship? God. God's worship. Yep. Yep. And the four living creatures said, Amen. May it always be. And the elders fell down and worshipped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that um, I, I didn't want to miss, if we look back in chapter eight, uh, verse 8, uh, it was as when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense. Now, again, just to reinforce our symbolism, that seems like two things that might be hard to keep in, keep in at the same time, right? Harp, bowls of incense, seems like figured. <laughs> okay, but what's in the, what's, uh, what's in the bowls? The prayers, the prayers of, of the saints. The saints. Odors. Odors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, yes. Odors of the saints. <laughs> yeah, the prayers. It says, which are the prayers of the saints? The 24 elders that, that seem, at least per our description, are the closest to God's throne are holding the prayers of the saints. It's a powerful, it's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thought to think that the prayers of the saints sit before God, attentive before his throne. Is there any symbolism to harp that we might be missing? Or is that just supposed to be a tool of worship? I th- that's what I think is just a tool of worship. There's, um, there's some like random attachments in the Old Testament. Most are just worship oriented. David and... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's true. It's indistinct. It's indistinct. It's, it's, it's Greek for Malhar. <laughs> They're blues singers. <laughs> These prayers of the saints are getting me down. <laughs> all, they, all they ever want was a little bit more money and make sure their kids get to get to the bus safely. Saints would basically would describe the. Um, uh, the people of God. That's the prayers of the saints. I know, but I mean, why is that? Why is it not that? <laughs> I mean, why are we called the saints? Saints sounds like uh, a high, a high ranking thing. We're, yeah, kingdom of priests. That's us. Yeah, so so I mean, I, I, I dig what you're saying, but like um, the connotation that we aren't saints, I think, is the wrong. That's where it's wrong, right? We don't have to describe ourselves up to being saints. We are saints. If we're like, if the Bible describes us that way as saints, as kingdom of priests, um, as a matter of fact, a lot of the, um, uh, especially if you have a Catholic Bible, um, it's, they're going to be it's going to be Saint Matthew, Saint Mark. Okay, um, it's going to be uh, the martyrdom of Saint Polycarp. If you look on the link that I posted online, okay, that's how they're going to refer to those guys. So um, that just it seems to be the biblical description of them. I agree with her. It's a cultural thing. You think saint, you think high. Yeah. You think higher than me. Right. Well, you're not there yet. I am. Uh, he is there. He is there. This is. These aren't the prayers of the guys in heaven. Yeah, this is no. the prayers of the saints. Yeah. These are on the earth. Right. Yeah. We've yeah. Been yeah. You agree with that, Saint Buva? Ooh. <laughs> 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 I feel, I feel a T-shirt coming. <laughs> the Lord and I have already been talking about a whole pride issue. So I do not need you to start. <laughs> <laughs> Just call me Saint Buva. Saint Buva. <laughs> I mean, that's not in my real name. So you can call me Sam Boo. Well, now you'll be right up there with Mother Teresa. Uh, I think I'm going to stick down in the mire where I am. <laughs> and just say his nameless today. dude on an audio track. See, I'm with Amanda, though. The Vatican just announced that, that Mother Teresa has been sainted now. Yeah. The Pope has declared that she will now have saint status. Or... And that, that's probably culturally where, that's, where that comes from, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That was all part of the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, though, too, 
when it came down to Jesus saying we are. Yeah. Like now, wait a minute, but we. Yeah, but I am. I don't know about that guy. I don't know about you guys. Yeah. Um, All right, chapter six. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, "Come." And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Here, let's, let's get through the four, and then we'll come back. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And he opened the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. All right. Okay, let's look. Let's look at our seals. Holy okay. So, uh, well, so just to note, the fifth seal. There's no horse associated with it. We had how many horsemen? Four. Okay. What what might we think or consider about our horsemen? Earthly completion. I agree. It's oriented toward the earth. I would agree with that because that's where the that's where these judgments seem to be falling on. Um, well, the creatures are releasing them. The four creatures are releasing them. Yeah. So the lion did, and the ox did, and the man did, and the eagle did. Yeah. Yeah, these creatures who seem to, we said, um, because of the eyes and stuff, they have some authority of God, and they're calling these things to go, okay? Uh, I would also say, given the four, I think they ride together. I don't think we're supposed to see these things as four, as e- even a specific event, but notice that they, all, they come with each other, okay, that they're riding together. It's, there's, a complete, there's a completion within them, okay? Now, let's see if that bears out with what it is that they're doing. Um, do we have the names of any of the riders? Well, so that's what he brings with him. Oh, yeah, so right. Rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. Yep. Okay, so we have one name of a horde. Do we have the names of anybody else? No, we have their colors. Yeah, we have their colors. I don't have a good explanation for the colors. There's some, there's some interesting thoughts out there about that, um, but nothing that I've seen that's uh, overly compelling. Um, did you have a thought about that, Dan? Well, it's just the one guy that's looking at it as he saw the colors, he realized... These four colors are on the Muslim flag. Like the European Christian side, our colors are red, white, blue. And, it, and he went through some of the other different nations, how all their colors are together, like German, Italian, and So would that be relevant? I would have my doubts that that's relevant, given the... Because given the that wouldn't mean anything to them. Like the people, but, but they're people groups. To, to, the, the, to the churches in Asia Minor. Asia Minor, they wouldn't mean anything to them. Like they have no idea what America would be. They wouldn't know what. Well, but they don't know. They're calling out the, what the Muslims haven't started yet. But those people. That's yeah. I think that's the point. That's generally where that would be my first point of dismissal is to say I don't know that that would have any relevance to them. So, but there's. Yeah, that's interesting. Wait, you think the, the you think the Muslims got together and said, "Hey, how can we most best resemble the four judgments upon the earth in Revelation 6? So <laughs> gather the colors and make a flag. The colors should have, the colors could have meant something to them, right? True. So there there is there is some potential ties to like um, there's some Roman games that are associated with like four different horses, and the colors are pretty close. 
Okay. Um, I, I, again, translation issues might make that difficult to pin on them. Um, so, so I don't know. I, I like. Uh, I would say that for the, from the horses, I don't have a good answer for that. I, they very well could mean something. I just don't know okay. how strongly they do. Um, and I keep going to the X Men stuff for like the four horsemen of the apocalypse and stuff like that. So I'm like, I'm really trying to make that understand itself in, uh, in a biblical sense. I just I don't want to have to say the only understanding I have of the four horsemen is from X Men. I just want X Men to be true. <laughs> How can there be X-Men? Uh, all right, so let's let's look at the description. Uh, the four living creatures with a voice like thunder, that pulls me back to God's throne. Okay, God is, I think God is doing this and the people that he's um, given the power to do it. Um, the white horse, its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. So let's, let's look at some of those symbols. Bow, what is that? War. Yeah, yeah, so it's, 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 it's a weapon. It's a weapon, yep. Um, a crown. Authority. Authority. Okay, came out conquering and to conquer. What does that sound like? Who who conquers? Who conquers other people? Kings. Kings. Yeah. yeah, kings, rulers. Yeah. Okay. So this looks like that. Or, and, and if you, if it comes with a bow and there's conquering going on, this sniffs a lot like war. Okay. War, wars are generally to conquer. Okay. You have a weapon in hand. You have it's authority. Yeah. I, I think uh, and tradition is called war. Okay. Our first horse is going to be called war. Now. Let's look at number two. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Now, here's my question. What's re- is there anything related between the second horse and what it does and the first horse? If I said that they ride together, is it, can we look at things that might tie them together? Well, if one's bringing war, the other one, you lose peace. Correct. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. It's a consequence of the first, of the first horse, right? Okay, with, with war, with conquering, there's, there's peace gone. Peace is being taken away, and men are slaying each other. Yeah, okay, I agree. Let's look at the third seal. When he opened the third seal, excuse me, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, uh, a little bit of context might help here. Um, wheat and barley would have been things you used to make what? Bread. Bread. Yeah, those are bread-making items, right? Okay, uh, barley would have been the cheaper of the two, generally speaking. These are uh, between, uh, what is it, 14 or 16 times the normal price for wheat and barley in that day. Okay? So from war and peace is gone, now your economy is going. Correct. And that bread would have been huge back then. Like, that was a huge amount of That's a huge amount what of their sustenance came from. Like, bread. they didn't have a lot of food other than, like, bread was the central portion bread of food. Bread and wine. Right. Yeah. Get out of my way. And that's, that's uh, the, uh, the, the economics of it, right? That's where that pair of scales come from. Okay, that's, that's, that's our vision for economics. Okay? Um, so, now, who gets... I was thinking <coughs> law. Yeah, I was thought judgment when I thought that right. scales, but it makes sense yeah. if you're going along with... They would have thought yeah. economy. Out, yeah, exactly. Yep. Laying out the grain, laying out the barley. And- Correct. That's a day, so that's a day's wage for these things. And so, like, those guys would have been paid by day. You go to the market, you buy the thing that you need to buy, and then you come home, and then you would use it for that day. All right? So that means, if I said it's, like, four, let's say 14 times more expensive than it normally is, so what a normal day's wage would get me, I now get uh, 14 days' wages to get the one day's worth of stuff that I'm used to buying. Who gets squeezed in that scenario? So what did you say, three times? Uh, 14. 14. 14 times. So somebody answered that. Who gets squeezed in that time? The poor people. The poor do. The poor do. Okay? The least of these. 
That's who gets squeezed. Does that happen in war? Is that a, is that a normal consequence of war? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I have a question about war. Yeah. It said, uh, take peace from the earth and that it should be killed one another. Yeah. Isn't it more than just war is causing not to have peace? Isn't he pulling peace from the earth or wherever he's going to cause havoc where they kill each other? I mean, it's more than just I'm giving war and not I'm taking away peace. He's generally taking peace off the earth. Yes. With the Spirit saying, you know, I've given you peace overall for all these years. Now you don't have it. Right. The spirit is, is unleashed on you, the wrong spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does that look like with no peace? Well, so here's, here's the question. Has, has there ever been a time in humanity without war? He said there's about a 300-year period back somewhere. And it's one of the... <laughs> it was a while ago I heard this. It just, that they did, did the tracing of it. There was a 300-year time where they couldn't find... The record of the war? Any war anywhere in the world. So that would be so. I, I think uh, I think I'm on board with most of what you're saying yeah. because the, the truth is like it's it's more than just they took peace from the earth. Like um, it is he is giving that this circumstance would occur. Like these, this emanates from the from the throne room of God, um, and these this, these things are happening um, where men are slaying each other, um, and peace is taken from it. However, I don't know if that there's a time in hum, in the history of humanity where I could call back and say war did not exist, and the th- circumstances that followed weren't also true. Right? You can't say well, peace never existed either because the overall circumstances of the history of the earth is peace really reigns over war most in most parts of our world. You have war here, war here, but peace usually keeps people uh, halfway sane. But is, is God's... That out. So here's the question though, is God's measurement a utilitarian measurement that says as long as there's more peace than there is war, then I consider it peaceful. Now you're over my head. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just telling you what I see and what I've seen of, of history. There's been peace while there's war. But there's more peace than war because if we didn't have any remote peace, there'd be war. I'd be killing you. You'd be killing me. Uh, true. So I don't know that this prescribes that there are there is no peace anywhere. But I think I understand what you're saying. Like I understand what you're saying. Like it. Well, because not only is the white horse conquering and to conquer. Now with the peace gun, it says so that people should slay one another. Yeah. Now there's infighting. Mm-hmm. Now there's, and maybe it comes down to, there's no bread, and so we're going to start killing people for their bread. So, or, you know, because of all of these things combined. So I agree. So I agree with that. I just don't know. Like, I don't know how this doesn't prescribe a constant thing, because this this seems like these this thing and this circumstances from those things has been a constant thing upon the earth since creation. It has always been the case that these things were happening. So, um, whether it, so I think what you're saying is that perhaps if, if this isn't to represent something that is happening at all times, but otherwise represents a specific time of which there literally is no peace at all, and which, like, basically the gates are opened and this is happening across the world with no semblance of peace anywhere, okay? That, that's, that's, that's what you're talking about. Okay, okay. I would, I would lean towards the thought that, like, that this is probably representing a, something that has always been true, um, but there's, again, people of Jesus that would otherwise look at this differently um, as if it was a trigger for um, something that is otherwise the end of the world which I, and which will tie to, to what happens in the remainder of the seals so, so we're still looking at this is happening right now as John sees it in the realm I would say that what he's he's taking in a vision that is not necessarily a prognostication or a of an event it is a 
um, the ability to see what reality is that, of something that has always been true. Because this is the type of thing that would, if, if there's Christians dying at the time, okay, in, or, or, or seven churches of Asia Minor, this provides no peace for them um, on God's sovereignty if it's happening a long way from now. Because if this doesn't describe their circumstance emanating from God's throne, then I don't get any assurances and, and peace from it. Okay? It doesn't mean they're invested. So I think there's ways that you can understand that um, with what Rick is saying. And it doesn't, there's other things that may speak to their peace. But that's generally why I would read this that way is because is it designed to say these things that you're going through, they still come from my throne. It's happening right now. It is, this has always been the case. War is at my hand. And so because this is tied to me, you can find some assurances that these things that you just worship me for, here's what they look like in reality. And I'm saying persevere even through it because I'm permitting them. But that wouldn't be a time when the gates were open, right? Because there were times of peace. There were parts of the world that were peaceful during those occasions. And so from a coming from the perspective of is I'm, act, I'm looking for ways in which the churches would be assured, um, I would take this to be something that was always happening. But that could be also be a blindness of mine because that's what I'm looking for. That's what I want to see is I feel like this should speak to the churches of Asia Minor. And so that's what I'm looking for it to say. Well, you told us not to look linear on this. You told us to look more at tapestry and painting, right? Yep. Yep. So that's kind of where I was laying. My thoughts were that this isn't sort of a linear where war comes and then it causes us to not have peace. It's, it's an overall, this whole picture of there's some... There's some bad stuff going on here. It's all going on at the same time. No, I would agree with that completely. Yes. Yep, definitely. Yeah, I think all... The churches are going to recognize that more than the others because there were some that were under severe persecution. Right. And then there were some that weren't worth persecuting. Yeah. <laughs> really yeah, they weren't even bringing anything on. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. there's an interesting parallel of the, the description of this horse and this rider to Matthew 10.34. Okay. Um, the scripture goes, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Mm-hmm. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Persons enemies will be those of his own household. And it goes on to explain that. Is yep. there anything to the uh, description of the same? It's, it's, it's not bringing peace, and it's bringing a sword, and it's talking about the fact that um, uh, so that people should slay one another. And he'd be given a great sword. Is there any wait to that to that or is that just coincidence so l- let me ask you this in the, con- the description of jesus no yeah that's jesus saying that i have I, I have not come to bring peace to the earth i've um i've not come to bring peace but a sword for i've set a man against his father um, in that context what is jesus um what's the sword that he brings uh, yeah yeah it's his word yeah yeah it's 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 him dealing with him is what sets people against each other yeah right. Yeah, and, and, and that, and that um, his very presence, or his nature interjecting in his world um, also causes a lack of peace, right? Because it is something people are willing to fight, or the things of men versus the things of God, definitely. So um, are, there some, are there some parallels to that? The question is, like, is he talking about the same thing? Is that the question? Well, so I guess I just, I saw an interesting similarity between that. I mean, yeah. I mean, in verbiage itself, I mean, the same outcomes, the same... Uh, same names are called out, like, or excuse me, the same uh, things are called out, peace and sword yeah. and outcomes. I didn't know if there was anything that's weighted to that parallel between the two of identity of the rider or identity of the, the horse. So I, I think, like, uh, let's look for parallels. So one, something that would be parallel is they both, they both come from God, right? We're saying both of these things originate from God, whether it's his word or whether it's interjection in the world that says, I'm okay with, with taking peace. Although, here, so here's probably the right question. Actually, I, I, bet, I bet the rest of these seals might help us bear this out. Okay. Um, and th- I wish we had time. We should talk about um, 
There's a, there's a parallel to this in Zechariah. Um, I'll read just a little of this um, to you. Zechariah, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answers, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered, The angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Now there's peace, there's peace from these fellows. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Uh, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they further the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord. So when he's talking about the world, he's not talking about the people. Uh, and that's not the whole world at rest. It's basically the nations that aren't his people. Right. They are at rest. They are at ease. Whereas Jerusalem is, is under, uh, under troubles. So I, there's, there's actually there's more horsemen in Zechariah. Maybe I'll, um, maybe I'll do that on Facebook for you. I'll take a look at some of the Zechariah stuff. And I think that there might be some insight coming from those uh, okay. that might help draw this together. But I think, I think actually some of our seals are going to tie this thing up. Let's, let's keep going with the seals. Oh, shoot. I marked Matthew 10, not Revelation 6. All right. Um, when you open the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed with him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the air. So if we look at the fourth, fourth seal, if, um, let's think on the trajectory of war. Is this not a natural outcome? Right. Okay, if so far you got a guy with a bow, it causes famine, um, it causes trouble for the least of these, and ultimately it brings death. And Hades, where uh, people who have died end up. Okay, we're basically collecting those that have died. Um, we'll try to get, there's some theology behind Hades, we'll try to get to maybe in a couple weeks. Um, all right, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now listen, we've kind of talked about this uh, through the first few weeks, but so it comes a little bit of a deadened surprise, but like this is outrageous. This is an outrageous thing that God has said. Like you have died for me and they say, how long? How long will you avenge our blood? And he says, not until more of you have died. But that's after they've received their white, though. So there, there's got to be some... Th- those saints had not, so because they get their white afterwards, right? Did this be the Old Testament saints? He said, they cried, uh, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? They were each, and they, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. So that, that does seem like a like he's saying, this is what they're asking for, and he's saying, not until more of you have died, you are a conqueror. The, and under the altar, right? A sacrifice to God. That's what, that's what these guys are underneath. And he says, just wait a little longer until more of you have died. Now, this, that's something, this puts your, do I, can I trust in the sovereignty of God right to a head? If, if everything else is like, yeah, okay, the, these things are happening, can I trust that he's got this under control? Yes. But when he says, we, the ultimate thing from, from an earthly perspective is, we have died, when will you avenge this? And he says, I will avenge it, but not, I, need, I want more. There will be more of you that have died. There's not enough that have died. For witness, or been basically been sacrificed. If that's how we understand kind of our altar imagery, there's not enough um, 
once that is complete, then my, my blood will be avenged. Now, um, one of the things we need to recognize from what they're asking is that they are in a, um, they're coming from an honor-shame culture, an honor-shame society, okay? Um, this is something that, that they value highly. Um, we, value, we tend to value time and money. Okay, their value is going to be honor and shame to the extent that um, they would fight. Uh, who, who did you? See? What's the best example of this? It's um, Herod. So when Herod, um, when uh, the, the the young girl's dancing, okay, and he says, "I will give you up to half of my kingdom," and she asks for the head of John the Baptist. That puts that puts Herod in a real wicked spot because the truth is, is that uh, he had he, he didn't he didn't mind. John the Baptist. But he also knew that if he killed John the Baptist, he risks taking away peace from where he's at. Okay? That people might riot on John's death. And not keeping peace in a Roman territory that you have been put over is very problematic. Okay? They will kill you for that. They will replace you. In fact, his, um, uh, his, his brother, Herod Archelaus, got removed for that very reason. Herod Archelaus was a young man. He, was, he became, after Herod the Great died, there's three Herods that otherwise start ruling over these sections of Rome. Herod Archelaus is 17 at the time, takes it over, is ruthless, ruthless, and has such a hard time maintaining peace because of his ruthlessness that Rome uh, eventually replaces him. Okay? So Herod, this Herod that uh, at the time, Herod Agrippa, runs the exact same risk. And so if he kills John the Baptist, um, he, depending on the reaction, could lose what he's ruling over. However, his honor is on the line. He said, I will give you anything up to half of my kingdom. So he has to behead John the Baptist because he would rather risk the fact that this outcome not happening the way that he wanted and putting his, his, the thing he rules over at risk rather than lose his honor that's associated with this. Another prime example would be some of, our, some of the uh, military engagements that we've gotten involved with in the Middle East. See, the truth is, is that like, we've not only, when we went into a culture and we said they, that perhaps we can liberate them from our perspective, we want, to, we want to help people, give them the freedom that we have. But the truth is, for some folks over there, our actions have not just shamed them, but we've shamed Allah. And they will do anything it takes to get His honor back. Okay? Which means they don't fight the same way we fight. And if we went into some of those interactions not considering that, okay, not recognizing the interactions, it's not just a, we're trading our culture for theirs. Okay? If, if their God was shamed, that's why you'll see a guy strap a bomb on. For, a, for honor for him and his family because of the sacrifice that he was to make, but it also reclaims the honor of Allah. So th- things to recognize when we're dealing with other people, like things that seem outrageous to us, they're not kneeling from the same paradigm. And if honor and shame is important to you, okay, and you're acting to regain honor, this means something. And so what they're talking about with God here is they're saying, this, if, if this, your servant dies, if someone that's attached to you dies, it is to your shame that they are not avenged. And that's God in this position. And they're saying, when will you avenge our blood? Don't you know that you're being shamed? Our God is, uh, do you remember, um, anybody that might have gone through the Daniel class, that same question was being asked when they were taken. Okay, when Babylon came and took them out, it's like, where was your God? Your God is shamed. Babylon's gods must be much more powerful than Israel's God because you were taken out. And, that's, and God has the same, basic same relative explanation. When he sends Daniel and says, look, um, here's your visions. My honor is just fine. Here's what's going to happen. I'm permitting this, causing it, causing Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Okay, my honor is intact. I know, you, I know it doesn't look like it to the world or to you, but I'm showing you that my honor is intact. That's what the book of Daniel is doing for his people. God is still with you. The book of Revelation is doing that exact same thing. And we've got a microcosm of it here where he's saying, more of you are going to have to die. My honor is intact. It'll be fine. Here's your victory. Wait it out. Okay? That's the fifth seal. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. 
And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free. How many was that? Kings, great ones, generals, rich, powerful, slave, free. Seven. 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 Hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand? Now, uh, if, anyone was, uh, if you were here yesterday for our sermon on Matthew, um, if we see things like stars falling from the sky, full moon like blood, fi- uh, sky vanishing like a scroll, every mountain and island removed from its place, that takes us back to what? It doesn't have to be the book, but just give me in general. To, to the temple. So, so the temple used similar language as three, at least three other occasions of which God has used this language, all is pointing to God's, a certain type of action on God's behalf. The, the wrath of God. The destruction of, of things that are in place. Yeah, it's judgment. Yeah. Yeah. It's judgment language. If we remember, um, if we remember from the sermon yesterday, you had um, quotes from Ezekiel that were judgment against Babylon. Same type of language, okay? Judgment against Egypt. Judgment against basically any nation that wasn't his people, okay? And then judgment against the temple is all using the same language, okay? So now if we, if we take this, if this is not, doesn't have to be a physical end of the world, right? Because I think there are some commentators that would look at this, even if they're following my basic trajectory, um, would say this is otherwise describing a physical end of the world. Um, and in fact, I probably thought that up like a couple weeks ago. Um, I think if I'm going to put this in context, though, I think he's just simply describing God's judgment upon humanity. Okay? And, and, and a complete judgment, right? Because we saw kings of the earth, great ones, generals, rich, powerful, slave and free. And the question that they're asking at the end of chapter 6 is, in the judgment of God, who is it that can stand? Who can withstand the judgment of God? That's a, that's a bit of a desperate question. But I think he's going to answer it. He's going to answer it in our interlude. Because um, we're, we're at our sixth seal. And so like all these things have culminated and, and into pointing to the ultimate judgment of God on humanity. And the question is, who can stand? It's interesting also that that's the sixth seal, considering the fact that like we're looking at seven, making a completion perspective. And the entire judgment of every bit of being is not the end. Right. It's, right. it's close to the end, but it's not the end. There's more to come after the complete judgment of all of God's creation. Yeah, because all this is happening and you still have guys talking. Yeah. <laughs> fall on us and hide us from the face of... Yeah, fall on us. There's, a, there's similar language to this in Ezekiel and it is the people of... It is the Jewish... Uh, basically, God's people that are calling for rocks to fall on um, non-believers. But, re- but what they're, the word is like idols. They're asking for their idols to fall on top of them. Okay? It's just an interesting parallel that exists in Ezekiel. It says, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. That's Jesus. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Sorry, that was God. And then Jesus, wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, one of the things I said about the judgments, the trumpet, seals, and bowls, is there, um, there's seven of them apiece. And there's also seven thunders, which he seals up and we don't get to know. But there's four, because I think he wanted completion. Um, between six and seven... For each one of those, there's going to be an interlude, okay? And those interludes are kind of our key to understanding this particular um, perspective of the judgment, okay? Because if these are telling the same story over and over from different perspectives, the question is, is like, what is this particular perspective focusing on? In the judgment of God, how, how is this 
what are we looking at this for? Why telling this? Because what we'll see is um, they'll each kind of tell about the similar things, um, but you'll see it ramp up. This was a quarter, right? They had rule over, um, they were only given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill. Okay? The next, the next judgment is going to be up to a third. So like you're going to see them kind of increase um, as it goes. So the question, lingering question from the sixth deal is who can stand? Who can withstand the judgment of God? And I think chapter 7 is going to answer that. Chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Uh, four is everywhere. I read, I read this week, so like, it's what we've been talking about, right? I think four angels, four corners of the earth. They're not four literal corners of the earth. Four winds of the earth. Okay, that's not a thing. There's not just like four winds coming from somewhere. Okay, that no wind uh, might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. So I was reading uh, on this section this week about someone who wanted, um, who thinks the 144,000 is a literal number. It's a literal count. And part of their basis was to say, if you notice, starting with chapter one, these are all literal numbers. Four angels, literal. Four corners of the earth, literal. Four winds of the earth, literal. Now here's the thing, like, I own a globe. We've kind of been to the moon. The four corners of the earth, we just can't get on, we just can't, that's not, cannot be a literal thing. I get, there's, there's options with how it is symbolic, okay, what's it, what it's pointing to, but like, that is not a literal count, and it hasn't been yet, all right? Um, so that's not a good foundation, like, I was kind of interested in how we got to a literal figure with 144,000, but like, that was like one of the main selling points. Doesn't the four corners come into play in Genesis? Yeah, that's a pretty consistent reference throughout the Bible. Talking about four winds, four, four corners of the earth. Yeah. But wasn't that something about, wasn't it something about the angels when he banished Adam and Eve? Oh, that's just a warning to garden tree of life. This is symbolic. Yeah. Four corners of the earth. Yeah. You say it all the time. He's been in the four corners of the earth. There's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a symbolic thing. So anyway, that's where we're starting. Okay? Four corners of the earth, no wind might blow on the earth or against any tree. Um, so he's, all the judgment that he's, that he's talked about so far, these are earth-directed, but he's just said, no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. He seems to be saying, wait, these things are coming. However, somebody's already reacted to them, so it should kind of mess with our concept of time. All right. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Um, does that stick out for anybody else? There's a couple potential references here. Well, the part was that you're saying that to mess with me, Custis. I don't like it. Don't toy with me with your barcode. <laughs> a mark of the beast. Yeah, isn't that where the horns yeah. I was going to say, when it talks about like, the number of the beast and then it shows the mark of the beast and stuff like that, Yep. that's, that's on their head, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so you're going to see a parallel to this. But like even prior to that point, to something that we haven't run into yet. Um, oh, that's when the, the Jewish leaders have the book on the, uh, the temple in Phylacteries. Yeah, okay. Phylacteries, yeah. It's the thing where he said, God, God says, um, write it on your, head, your foreheads and your hands, right? Okay, and it's an indication of who you serve. Have me on your mind all the time. This is who you belong to, right? It's a measure of belonging, okay? And so if he's talking, and that's the same thing, by the way, that's kind of come up with the mark of the beast, okay? How do, you, how do I know who you belong to, okay? Um, it's also, there's also reference in um, Ephesians 1, um, and it's 13 to 14. I'll read it for you real quick. Um, 
when it comes to the seal, it says, in, uh, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Right? So we, have, we kind of have this notion of being sealed, something that indicates that we belong to God. What's the Bible reference, Ephesians? Uh, 1, 13 to 14. Okay. So, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. You know what I was wondering? But um, in Ephesians, are we sealed? Is so, that at the, at, like, baptism? No, he would, he would describe it to basically a Holy Spirit. Holy, okay. Yeah. And you want to start a rumble, you start talking about when the Holy Spirit comes, whether accompanied by baptism or not. But we'll have to waive that for another day. <laughs> um, do not. So he says, uh, have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads so that they can be identified as the servants of God. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Here we go. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Who are these people? Like, like literal 12, 12 tribes? The nation of Israel. So if it's a nation, okay, then who's that? Well, what I mean, sorry, like God's people. Not, not the literal, like, geographical lines of Israel. I'm talking okay. God's people, the, the notation of Israel, or God's perspective of that. Why do we think that? Complete. There's a couple things kind of playing here. Let's talk through them. So that's, that's the name of all the tribes of Israel right there. Yes. It's a number of completion represented from all the tribes. If we are all descendant, descendant of those tribes, and those are completion numbers for all of those, that represents God's people. Okay. Incarnate. So yeah, so that, that's, that's probably the first question. Is there? I said that if we're going to take a number literally, we have to have a good reason to. Okay, we have to have something that would otherwise indicate that we should probably think of this as literal and not figurative. Do we have anything here that would make me think this is definitely a literal count of 144,000 people? Other than it's saying it. <laughs> yeah, besides the fact that it's listed, but so is... Besides the fact that it says it. Besides four angels, four corners, right? So like, along those same grounds. 12,000 from this, 12,000 from yep. this, 12,000 from this. What's... What, what? The, the complete number. That, so from this tribe, all of them are here. This tribe, all of these people, all these people. And the total of all these people makes the more total totals. So has 12 so far... Okay, even even outside of Revelation, biblically, we're talking literal number because there's not twelve thousand in each, right? Each one, it can't be a literal number. We understand that. So here's this is important though because there is there is actually there's there's quite a bit of modern theology that's based upon this being a literal count of one hundred forty four thousand. Jehovah's Witnesses function off this. That's why I won't join. Okay, they're full. Well, that's what I'm saying. I would never proselytize. I would never talk to anybody about 144,000. If there's only so many spots, the last thing I'm going to do is go talk to somebody else. Their belief is that there's basically 144,000 that get to be with God, and then everybody else, you can still kind of get the benefits, but you live on earth uh, no longer with God. That's how they would take this. It's, and they're trying to bump somebody from off so that they get a hold. I don't know. I don't know how that works. It throws me off because 
It says, and I heard the number of the seal, the 144,000. Mm-hmm. Breaks that down. Yep. The next verse says, after this I looked, and behold, the great multitude that no one could number. Like, the next verse says, no one could number. Uh, and so, above it, it says, I heard the number of the sealed, and then it says underneath that, I looked, and no one could number the multitude. They're in a different place. You switch venues there. These are people on the earth. Listen, look, it says, number of uh, great multitude that no one can number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Where's the, where's the throne? Heaven. We're the, we're the ones that are being sealed. They're on the earth. Okay, a couple things to point out. I don't think it's a literal number. The what? The sealed foreheads. No, they're they're on earth. They're on earth. Because they're, they're on earth. Because there's what time is it? almost, <laughs> almost. Because remember, he's he's saying the judgments are towards earth, right? Okay. Yeah. The judgments are being are being are the seals are being poured, opened. Okay. Judgments are showing up on earth. He's saying hold back until we seal them. Okay, gotcha. Those people are on earth. These are earth oriented. Yes, Dan. Well, we just finished talking about the, the people that are under the throne of the sacrifice. Yep. So he's waiting for. Then, uh, something else to happen before that number is completed. Correct. And he, does, he probably doesn't want the ones that are going to be under his throne part of this number here. It seems like he wants a, there's a separation. I don't know about that. Like, like uh, I don't know that that I would exclude that these people that are marked from his judgment still don't end up from the other consequences of the seals end up underneath the altar. I think that's possible. So here's, here's some things to look at when it comes to the number. Um, I, I also bring this up because there is, um, if, we, if people think uh, country of Israel, 144,000 from tribes, country of Israel, like that's not tenable. That's not tenable in this circumstance. Okay? Um, but that does kind of, po- that it does play into certain uh, alternate millennial views is how we understand the nation of Israel. So um, here's what I think. I agree with Bova when it says sons of Israel, um, I think we're talking God's people. That's traditionally what, what that's been. I think it's God's people. I think there's no reason not to take the 12 as, um, as a figurative number. It's represented God's people. It's where our elders are coming from. It's a derivative of 12. You have a complete number associated with the earth, uh, associated with God's people, times a big amount, a thousand. We said a thousand we can use figuratively because of a phrase like God owns cattle on a thousand hills. It doesn't mean that on a thousand one he doesn't own it. It's, it's expansive. All these. Okay, all of these. Now, the, the list, though, is a little bit problematic. These are not the 12 sons of Israel. Well, these not, well, let me, let me, let me reword that. These are not the 12, these are not the 12 tribes of Israel. So, uh, no, Issachar is one. Levi is a son of Israel, but he's not a tribe of Israel. They were not given any land. Oh, they were, yeah, they were in charge of the tribe. Correct, correct. So, because our tribe, the way that the way the Old Testament refers to tribes of Israel, basically refers to land that was given, and so that creates the tribes of people. So, uh, if we look down our list, Levi, Dan, Dan is missing. Dan, uh, yeah, that's a problem for you, Custis. So, um, so, so here's the thing. Let me, um, let me, let me get it for you real quick. That's rough, isn't it? So here's, here is the, uh, in 40, Genesis 49, Israel is talking to his sons. And let me see if I can get you uh, the right reference here. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Jan, Dan shall be a serpent in the way a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the, his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, Lord. <laughs> Dan, you're not the happy brother. Yet, Dan, basically the tribe of Dan, and this shows up a lot also in um, kind of your intertestamental Jewish literature. Dan is no longer God's people. His tribe will be problematic. 
um, and is no longer considered, considered God's people. And so you see a swap here. Dan is gone. Levi is in. The, who, what, Levi was the, I, you already said this, but Levi was, was what? Priests. Priests. Who's, who, who's the kingdom of priests? Okay. Does that give us an indication that perhaps this is supposed to be a collective, all of God's people? Who's, who's been swapped? Well, that's the point, though. That's the point, is to say, um, look, look who's here that shouldn't be here. Ah. Levi's here. Kingdom and priests. If we are the kingdom and priests, okay, that's why you see the entry. Judgment again, like he held to it. Yeah. Yeah. Took care of it in the Old Testament. Dan was a shiesty fellow, so he's no longer. And he's done. There is no more Dan. There's there's another weird thing. We won't go into this because, frankly, I'm not. I'll have to think through this a little bit more. But um, uh, Joseph is here, and that's weird. He also didn't get an inheritance. Joseph Joseph didn't get. Who got an inheritance instead of Joseph? You guys remember? Jacob. No. His two kids. It went to it went to Ephraim and Manasseh. It didn't go to him. So Ephraim Ephraim's gone. For if you're looking at tribes, like people that would have received things coming from Israel, um, Joseph did not get it. Okay. All right. After this, I look. That's our 144,000. I think that's a complete number of people of God's people who are being God saying. So so here's the so here's the question: Can they stand then? If if our ending question of, of in chapter six was who can stand under the wrath of God? The people, are, the people of God on earth, there's answer number one. They can stand. They, they've been sealed. Okay? They will stand, not necessarily from physical persecution, right? Because we know that that's, that has not been true. See people under altar. Okay? But spiritual protection. Yeah. They can stand under the wrath of God. Next. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, language. Standing before the throne, so now we're in heaven, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. That gives us an even better idea. That's, that's a bit of a, um, um, of a um, triumphal entry vision to that, right? Okay, conquering. Palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing. Who else can stand? Angels. Angels. Angels can stand. Standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. Uh, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Seven. To be, uh, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me. I like this guy. This is one of my favorite characters in Revelation, this guy right here. Uh, one of 24 comes aside and says, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? He's asking John questions. <laughs> You're the new guy. <laughs> Help me out. <laughs> where have they come? I, I said to him, sir, you know. <laughs> I mean, I know, obviously, but uh, certainly you know as well. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny, it's funny there's some stuff that ends up in Scripture, you're right? Like, it's, it's, a very, it's a very holy book. We take it, we live our lives based upon it. And there's this interaction between John, and he's like, yeah, he tried, one of the elders tried to pull a fast one on me. He wondered if I was paying attention, maybe. So here's the thing, is this happens more than once. This also happens to Ezekiel. <laughs> like, it's the same basic thing. Like, somebody asks him a question. He's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I got that. What do you think? <laughs> like, it's, it's very much that same thing. <laughs> so I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, those are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. 
and he will guide them to springs of living water. Sounds a little bit like Psalm 23. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So let's deal with great tribulation. Because uh, generally this is, this is our keys. Like, oh, oh, well, it must have been like a particular event calling of a great tribulation. However, great is not, uh, it's a measure. It's not a proper distinction, right? Like it's not a noun that says this is a event, great tribulation. Okay. It is a measure of the tribulation. Have we seen the word tribulation so far? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Where did we see it? Beginning partner. Beginning, right? John. Yeah. Tribulation. John is the partner. Yeah. Yeah. So probably best to understand this as things that Christians share through either either coming out of the seals or basically the nature of um, this. Actually, I think this ties very well into Matthew ten. Okay. These are the, the tribulations that Christians are going to face. You know, can be derivatives of coming out of the throne of God as we think of the things that come from the seals, or frankly, they simply arise from the truth of, of what Jesus has spoken and their natural consequences of believing or understanding those things or following those things. Okay. All right, let's uh, let's stop there. Where are we at? Eight fifteen. Ho ho.